Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Average Dude Podcast. My name is Daniel Allison, and I am the Average Dude. Have you ever talked to a Navy SEAL? I haven't until today, and I was really excited about it. I know that Navy SEALs do really hard things, and the older I get, I realize this is what I really look up to, people that are able to push through and get things done and have the right mindset to do that. So I was really excited to have Mr. Tom Shea on the podcast. Tom is a 23-year veteran of the SEAL program. He's a best-selling author and a leadership consultant. We had a really good conversation. Like I say, get your pen and paper ready because you're going to come away with some really gold nuggets. Let's get started. Let's roll. How are you? Good morning, Tom. Thanks for uh, taking the time today, man. Appreciate yeah, it. I, I appreciate you coming on. This is an honor. Yeah. <laughs> it I, uh, sounds weird when people say that to you, but I get it. <laughs> no, absolutely. I was, that was one of the things I was going to ask you. I mean, when we, hear, when we hear somebody's a Navy SEAL, right, that, that has a certain connotation. It's almost like instant respect, isn't it? Uh, unless you're a SEAL surrounded by other SEALs, but uh, <laughs> right. it's a lifestyle that, uh, I, I, you know, I – I did it for 23 years and I find it just to be normal and my family found it to be normal. And then when you get out, it, it's somewhat abnormal. Yeah. So you were, you were a SEAL for 23 years and now all of a sudden you're not on deployment. You're in the house a lot more, aren't you? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think retirement is actually busier in its own unique way than being a SEAL. Okay. Well, well, let me ask you this. So this is the Average Dude podcast. Okay. So, I don't know if you've ever heard the word average when, when, when somebody's using your name or not, but can an average dude be a SEAL? Uh, I think the more uh, we call the guys that are successful at being a SEAL are the uh, ones that are bottom feeders, the ones that can do without more than somebody else. It's never the ones that are at the top of the, the, uh, the bar, so to speak. You can't be really intelligent and make it through, even though some people that are PhDs end up making it through. Right. Uh, but, uh, it's more who can do common things or average things more better and quicker than somebody else. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what made you decide you wanted to become a Navy SEAL? I grew up with, uh, some guys that had been what they called the a precursor to the SEALs during World War II. Like one of my dad's friends was in the, uh, the Navy, you know, demolition units that actually cleared the beaches in Iwo Jima and some other uh, Pacific uh, naval invasions. And so I grew up with those guys and their mentality. And I, I had struck out first to go to uh, West Point, even though I made it in, I was there for three years and, ended up failing out in English of all tragic events in the world. And, yeah. and then uh, I went back to those guys who had been SEALs and, and their advice was, you got to do something that you're passionate about and don't ever look back. And I'd wanted to be a SEAL. Mm -hmm. So that encouragement from guys who had been there ended up pushing me into that, uh, that area. And how, how did you prepare for that mainly? So you, you had kind of had this uh, desire, strong desire to become a SEAL. Uh, it's part of the family tradition. 
Uh, and, and so you knew that this was going to be, buds is not going to be an easy thing. How do you prepare for something like that? Were you scared? Were you nervous? Did you think you would make it? How does that feel? Oh, well, you know, so back in the day, and I say that because I feel older, uh, you know, saying it, uh, back when I tried to become a SEAL, it was before cell phones and, and computers, and you couldn't find any information on it, and it was very secretive. Mm. Other than knowing somebody who had been a SEAL, nobody ever talked about it. So the I had found out through just the desire to find out the information, what it took to get in. Because mm -hmm. it wasn't even a program that you could, you could find unless you, you know, knew how to communicate it to the Navy recruiter. Yes. And uh, so I realized that uh, you had to swim, which in the back of my mind, I knew that, but I didn't know what the requirements were. And <laughs> I couldn't swim. Oh, no. And uh, so, you know, a farm boy from Indiana doesn't grow up in a pool. <laughs> That's right. And so uh, you had to be able to run pretty quickly. You had to be able to do ungodly amounts of push-ups and sit-ups, and you had to do more pull-ups than the, the average person, mm -hmm. and you had to swim. So uh, what I also knew, what I think most, if you want to call it average people, don't understand Yes. The common person doesn't understand is uh, you have to commit. Mm -hmm. You can't wait for the, the moons to align with Jupiter and you can't wait for anything to be perfect. You have to commit and then figure it out as you go. And uh, so I, I immediately went up and signed up for SEAL training without the ability to pass the test. Mm -hmm. And then there's just a lot of work to do. And I ended up swimming every day for three months before I could figure out the right, you know, technique in, in order to pass the test and, you know, do, do the simple stuff, you know, do the push-ups when nobody wants you to and ended up doing probably a thousand of everything a day on my own because nobody else wanted to work out at that level. Yes. They, they recommended don't do weights. I'm like, well, how do you get strong and you not do weights? come to find out you don't actually need weights to do well athletically. <laughs> you just got a hammer. And I learned how to hammer. Right. And uh, I don't know if that quite answers your question, but it, it I, I found a way to, to recover from loss and uh, just do the basics more than anybody else could possibly do. So, so when, when you get started, I, and I just can't help but ask you about this, we're going to get on to some other things, but when you got into the SEALs, was it something, you know, a couple of, say, a couple of days in where you're like, hey, I, I've got this, or were there times when you feel like, man, I'm, I really want to quit right now, you know? What well, that, that's, it's the unique part of the SEAL program is it's solely designed on giving you access to every reason to quit. Like it's literally designed not to make you feel good about your performance. It's designed to make you fail all the time. Yeah. And uh, trying to get feel, rid of people. <laughs> and you feel miserable. I mean, there's not a day. There are some days that you like, wow, I got away with something today. I don't feel like I'm going to die. And mm -hmm. there's so few and far between. Nobody recalls them. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I'm, I learned to face the demons every single day. Like there's reasons to legit reasons to quit the training. Like 
you break something or you you're sick and you can't do anything and you have a fever and they don't care. Either you show up and train in the face of all that adversity or you go away, which is another reason why there's always an attrition rate of around 90% of the people who talk, who start don't make it. Yes. So correct me if I'm wrong. You over that 23 years, you transitioned into like an instructor at, at a certain point, correct? Yeah. So it, uh, I, I'm the, I, I know right now I'm the only guy that has gone into hell week five separate times. Wow. They don't allow it to happen anymore. How did that, how did I that think happen? they say it does damage psychologically and physically to you. Yeah. So I, I, I went to hell week five separate times. I was actually kicked out of training for nine months and had to come back because I kept getting injured mm. and, uh, but I wouldn't quit. So they, they, kind of allow you to have injuries if you're never going to quit. Mm -hmm. And so then I eventually graduated and made it into a SEAL team. And then after three deployments at SEAL Team 2, I came back to be an instructor for three years. Yes. So were there things that you started picking up on that helped you identify within this SEAL group? Because we talked about, you know, once you're in that pond with other SEALs, everybody's average, right? So it's right. that data set. So once you're around other SEALs, there's even within the SEALs, there's folks that become leaders. There's guys that don't make it. T tell me what it's like to evaluate that from an instructor standpoint, having gone through BUDS, the hardest training there is out there that I'm aware of, how, how is it to watch others and were there surprises? Just tell me a little bit about that. Well, you know, so I, I guess you, and then you, so you go to the SEAL team. Yeah. And you have to uh, prove yourself literally every single day. And, and they, what they say in the team says you got to sharpen your knife every day. Mm -hmm. And as a culture or an attitude of everybody there, nobody's impressed by what you do. Mm -hmm. they're only interested in what you're going to do the next day or the current day. Wow. Yeah. You did all this stuff yesterday. Cool. What are you going to do today? And so that becomes the culture that is it's one is it's a very difficult culture. And if you're fighting it, like if you're somebody who wants accolades, the seal community is not going to be friendly to you. Mm. And so then, I, you know, that was three deployments, which is about six years. And then I decided to, I needed a break because I was gone probably 11 months a year for six years. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, I, I, you know, either I'm going to get divorced or I'm going to take some time to have, you know, a family life. Yes. So I came, uh, so they gave me orders to, to be an instructor. And as you check in as an instructor, your sole responsibility is to make it very difficult for people to make it through training. Yeah. And that's your job, which is an interesting phenomenon, both in the business world and in the SEAL community. If you make it difficult, better people come. If you make things easy for people, like in the business world and in the SEAL teams, it doesn't go well. So, and you know, which I, even though that wasn't your question in the business world, everybody makes it easy for, for people in an organization to 
be there in the organization. Uh-huh. And it, it causes terrible conflict. So now you're, so now being an instructor, your job is to make it, the margin for error is very small mm-hmm. and they have to meet standards. And the standards are so, they're not actually high. They're just standards every day. So the SEAL community or the, the BUDS program is a six month long program that's designed to teach the students how to meet standards every single day of their life, both, mm-hmm. both at work and outside of work. Like you're on call as a human being 24 hours a day, you have to represent the community. You can't, you know, go out and do stupid stuff and then have the community embrace you. So as an instructor, you have to foster that. You have to kind of model it. And they demand the instructors to be better at the training than the students, mm-hmm. which was an interesting concept. If you're going to lead, you have to lead by example. And so they demand you be physically and emotionally, you know, better than the students you're teaching. Absolutely. And so, I think it's still a great model. Like if, when businesses pick up that model, everything works out rather well. But one yeah, thing that, I, I, uh, I, to answer your question in a roundabout way, <laughs> uh, what I did pick up that is demonstrative to every human being and what I've you know, been trying to write about in the series of books that I've been writing is the simple stuff makes all the difference. And when you don't do simple, life becomes complex. And as a student, all you're asking them to do is very simple things. Mm-hmm. Like do a push-up. I'm just going to ask you to do a thousand. <laughs> yeah. And what happens inside the human being is it refuses to do simple anymore. Like it looks at everything complex as a student, you're like, man, we got to do a thousand push-ups. Yeah, we're going to do a thousand. And the instructor is going to do a thousand as well. Mm-hmm. But the students get in uh, like an emotional despair. Yeah. They get punished for not doing 10. So they, they get punished. There's various forms of punishment that you give them. <laughs> and then they don't do the push-up anymore. Yeah. And by not, not doing the simple push-up, they get punished again. And then they get down on each other and down on themselves. And eventually that makes people quit. While the people in training who just doing simple things make it through rather easily. Like, mm-hmm. I'm, like the student has to learn no matter the complexity or the chaos and uh, that's going on, disregard all of it and just do simple things that we're asking that we're as, as an instructor staff are asking you to do. Yeah. Swim, run, do push-ups, pay attention, be here on time. Very simple thing. Be here at six in the morning. I don't care about the reasons and literally you don't care. Okay. Your wife divorced you. I don't really care. You, you didn't show up at six and now you're out. So it becomes that simple. And, but the student isn't born into that. Like the, the environment that most kids come from is very complex and excuse driven. And you have to break all that down to the basic level of stuff that humans need to do. And so what happens is they make it through 
a series of trainings into hell week and mm-hmm. hell week. We're going to make you do things that are going to only make you want to quit. And unless you make it through those experiences, you're not trainable. Mm-hmm. And that's the genesis or that's the, the whole reason that seal training exists is to kill all your excuses in your life. Either you're going to do what you say you're going to do, or we can't keep you in the community. And that's why only 90%, that's why 90% don't make it. Yeah. I I love what you said there. Uh, You know, it's not about what you did yesterday. It's not about what you're going to do. It's about the rep that you're doing right now, whether it's a push up or whatever, whatever the exercise is, but it's a great, it's a great mindset for how we can approach our, Civilian lives. Right. I agree. Yep. So, so let me, I'm, I've, I've listened to a lot of your content. I haven't had a chance to read the book. I'm going to make sure that I mention that here in the, in the introduction when I record that later. But you've written a book, Three Simple Things, Unbreakable. Uh, and I've written down just a, a few topics here. We won't be able to get to all of them. I know you've got a lot of content out there. It's fantastic. But one of the things, talking about excuses and the excuses that we give ourselves, if we've started some type of exercise program, let's say, and uh, what are some of the typical excuses that the mind will tell us and and talk us into quitting? Well, taking what I'd learned as a SEAL instructor and also what I learned from leading guys in combat several, you know, six different times, Mm -hmm. and then transitioning what I learned to the business community and, and teaching it. So it's different knowing something than being able to teach it. Yes. And so putting, uh, I developed a program to train leaders, uh, gosh, like seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And in the process, it was a learning experience for me. Uh, most people want to achieve results, mm-hmm. but the, the gap between wanting to achieve results and actually achieving them, the biggest hurdle isn't what I thought it would be. It's actually you got to overcome all reasons and excuses not to to continue. That's in business, that's in life, relationships, health, anything. Is overcoming excuses not to continue. Yeah, so we excuse ourselves from our own success. And so putting 190 people through this training, I found that there are four predominant excuses that come up for every human being. The first one, everybody would recognize this, is it's painful. Like success is painful. It's emotionally painful. If you're trying to run or work out, there's pain involved in it, Mm -hmm. either physical or emotional pain. Excuses people from success. Mm -hmm. It hurts. So I don't want to go work out. I can't, uh, you know, absorb another no from a client and that's emotional pain that people experience. So then they don't do the basic stuff. Like Mm -hmm. I can't get on the phone anymore because I can't hear another no because it's painful. Yeah. So that excuse, the pain excuse is very predominant for human beings. The next excuse, I don't know if they're rank ordered, Another excuse is I don't have support from my family or other people. So people use that excuse not to do basic, simple things. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to be a great 
student athlete. I wanted to be a business leader, but my wife didn't support me. Mm-hmm. That's literally how people in, encounter that excuse. Yes. My wife doesn't support me. My boss doesn't support me. So then I don't do work anymore. Projecting it onto someone else, the responsibility. Yeah, blame. It's yes. another condition called blame. Right. So the third excuse is what I, I wouldn't have been able to say this in the SEAL teams because it sounded differently, but in the business world, the third excuse is an excuse called I forgot. People use that all the time. <laughs> oh, I forgot. I totally forgot. I yeah. forgot to deposit the money. I forgot to make the phone call. I didn't send the email. I totally forgot. Uh, I didn't know there was a meeting. Well, we told you, but you forgot. Mm-hmm. I forgot has literally killed more successful endeavors than I would have imagined. In the SEAL teams, everything, nothing is predicated on one person being able to do it by themselves. So nobody ever forgets. If I'm tasked with something, somebody else is tasked with it too to follow up on it. Mm-hmm. So in a, in a ripe corporation or a ripe culture, the excuse I forgot doesn't exist. Yeah. In the business world, I forgot exists because there's not a, uh, a lot of follow-up that happens. The final excuse has been probably the greatest leverage advantage of the training is uh, it sounds like the excuse sounds like this in people's heads. And here's how it sounds. This is stupid. (laughs) I wanted to do that. Now it's stupid. And it always happens in the very end, like right before success gets hit. Do I have to get up on Sunday and make a hundred more calls? Do I have to, like even in successful, I, I run ultra marathons. Yeah. The excuse, this is stupid, is in the last 10 miles. Mm. <laughs> this is stupid. I, I feel like I'm, I'm doing yeah. damage to myself. Uh, I'm never going to recover. So your brain goes, man, this is stupid. Why are you doing this? Right. That's what I saw in business community, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. This is stupid. And that's how most business leaders destroy an effort right before it becomes successful is it doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah. It's, it, it's interesting that you say that. So I, I started running about a year ago and a lot of times that when I, when I first get up that, that will come, this is meaningless. What's the point of doing this? And, and I have to, you know, I have a variety of things that I do, but I have to get through. I have to know, Hey, why am I doing this? Well, I said that I was going to do it. I've got to get up and run today. Right. And, but getting over that line is huge. Yep. And that's, you know, that's, it's really easy to track that athletically because most athletes, you know, enough, like even right before the Super Bowl, most athletes in the, in, in professional football are like, man, you know, we made it to the game. Do we really want to go out and play the game? Yeah. Without coaching, most athletes wouldn't play. Right. I said, who wants to do anything for six months? Uh-huh. Every single day, beating yourself up, dropping balls, getting tackled, yeah. having pain. And this is stupid comes up so often that, I, that you know, as a, as a trainer now, 
I'm like, here's what we're going to do. The best thing I could offer anybody is overcome those four excuses until we can do that. No injection of intellectual property or any training has any advantage. I, I like that. I, I love those four. Let me ask you this. And we're going to move on here. Let's talk about fear. Uh, so I, I guess I wanted to hear your thoughts on a couple of different topics. So I'm going to jump around a little bit, but the fear of judgment of others, people pleasing, and, and then the kind of fear where you might be scared of heights or something like that. What, what are, you know, you, you probably have a little bit of both of those, I would think, in the seals. And, and I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on overcoming fear. Uh, well, I'd have to define two different terms if you're going to ask it that way. Okay. Scared and fear are not the same. So, you know, uh, seeing a bear in the woods, you should be scared. Like you should be able to react to an impulse, you know, getting shot at, uh, seeing a mob. So you should be scared of things like yeah. that's healthy. Mm -hmm. Fear, however, is an emotional response and that's literally all it is. And my definition of fear is it stops you from doing something mm -hmm. like fear of heights actually stops you from doing something at height. I like that. Fear, fear of public speaking, public speaking is an emotional response that, that if you feed the fear, you cannot speak in public. Like there's a lot of people that can't speak in public because yes. it's just fear based. Yeah. So as it, all emotions have very visceral responses for human beings and I, well, meaning that you have hormonal response to fear. If you don't learn about fear, like fear stops you from everything. If you don't learn it and it cripples you, like that's what fear is designed to do to the, uh, like the amateur human being. Yeah. But all fear is exactly the same. There's no difference between one fear and another. Once you encounter and overcome one fear, you've actually overcome them all. I, I love that. You said fear stops you from doing something, and that's exactly right. It, it's it's the it's the the wall between doing and not doing. Yeah. And once you climb that wall, you've overcome the fear. Yep. And the only thing that you can do with fear. Well, let me let me answer it this way. So I, I, I say it probably as succinctly as I can. In the SEAL community, fear is just beaten out of you. Like they give you everything to be afraid of. Like they threaten to kill you constantly. Yeah. So that you stop paying attention to their saying and then go do it anyway. Like we're going to beat you until you die. Yeah. And then who wants to quit? So some people quit. And then the rest of you go and do it. Once you take a step toward fear, it diminishes it mm. all the time. Like if you're afraid to go like in the seal, like every seal hates cold water Yeah, because they keep putting you in cold water. You got to go into the cold water anyway. <laughs> but once you go in it, you're like, it's not really that bad. I know I'm not going to die. Yeah. And they, you know, they threaten to, punish you more. They threaten, they literally threaten to kill you so that you can overcome that, that fear mechanism. The reason why they do that is to prepare you for combat. 
-hmm. And in combat, you're going to die. Like literally you're going to die every time you go out, but you go out anyway. And so you don't face anything from the understanding that you're afraid. You're scared. You're going to respond, but you're not going to have an emotional response to being shot at. You're not going to have an emotional response to running out of ammo. You're not going to be afraid that, you know, somebody is injured. It's just a problem that you have to solve by action. So fear is literally the absence of action. Mm. And, you know, in the SEAL community, they talk about it. They teach it to you. And they give you ex experiences that are fear-born in the business community. Nobody talks about it. And everybody has fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. Thank, I appreciate that. Some great points on it. So I, I, I want to keep moving on because I've got so many that I want to hit, Tom. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Visual, visualization. Is visualization something that you used or is that something that was encouraged in SEAL teams? Uh, it would depend. On, it's, yes, but it's not called that. It's called practice. Mm. So part of practice is uh, communicating it, like being able to verbally talk things through from, from left to right or beginning to end. And then as a part of being able to communicate, you have to actually see that playing out. Mm -hmm. And then you, then you go out and rehearse. And as a part of rehearsal, you're making the body go through all those things prior to actually going and doing them. Mm -hmm. So communication, rehearsal, practice, practice, practice that creates a visual a visualization that happens inside of the brain constantly and visualization without communication rehearsal and practice is a tragedy like being able to see something play out in your head without going out and making your body do it uh, is a tragedy for human beings it's, it's called a dream i like that so yeah. having dreams without rehearsal and practice and communicating them and then practice, 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 it resides as a dream. I like that answer a lot. I, I, I agree with you. If we start daydreaming, that's never actually moving the ball forward. You've, yeah. got, to, you've got to put some other things uh, in play there. That's, that's great stuff. Uh, one of the things that are, let's talk about learning and always being, so I, you know, intellect and learning new things. What are, what are your thoughts on, on how we can do that? I would take what somebody else had told me because I think they described it better than I could. Okay. The dumbest person in the room is the one who thinks they know everything. <laughs> the smartest person in the room is the first one that says, boy, I don't really know. <laughs> All right. and, and you find that to be true I call the wise person probably has done something a thousand times, but yeah. what they also learn from that is there, it was done differently a thousand times. And nah. so they never come across as knowing how it's going to work out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Boy, that's a good idea. Well, let's see if it's going to happen. Yeah. Wise people will try something 
anybody puts on the table. Because mm. new insight, new people create new outcomes. Even though something may not have worked a hundred times, you re-inject new people and new thoughts into it, which I think is the predicate to intellectual capacity is the ability not to know anything. I love I that. how it's going to turn out. Let's go figure it out. Yes. Yeah. If you haven't formed many conclusions, you're open to new perspective. Yeah. yeah you know, and, and I, I find that, I don't know if it's the right way to answer the question. Smart people study all the time and then realize that half the things they learn may not have the impact that the book had said it will have. Like when you read how to invest as a, it'll tell you how to invest and you go do it and it doesn't work out that way. <laughs> so smart people are like, wow, that, that didn't work. I wonder what I didn't know. I missed something. So they keep constantly going back and either asking, rereading something, re doing it, do it differently every time, or maybe there's something that is, you know, just not feasible as opposed to learning something and thinking that it's going to be true throughout life. I love that. The next, the next topic that I want, these are some fantastic gold nuggets. This is what I was looking for. Uh, what are your thoughts on competition? and how we can use competition to better ourselves in, in lieu of getting into the comparison game. I just wanted to get your overall thoughts on that. Oh boy, that's a, it's a quagmire. Uh, comparison from the, the, the capacity of, you know, if I'm doing something and I compare myself to what somebody else is doing in the same endeavor, mm -hmm. it depends on the mindset of the person. If I compare myself to you and I see that you do something better and I adapt how you're doing it and it makes me better, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. If I'm competing against you and you win, if my mindset is odd, I won't compete anymore. Most people, when they compete and they lose, get distraught. Mm -hmm. So what is not taught or understood well in that comparative analysis and competition environment is how you're absorbing those two conversations. Competition, if you are always learning, like I know I'm going to fail 100 times more than somebody else. If you put a competitive person into an environment and they recognize they're not going to win all the time, mm -hmm. that's a good thing. But if you put somebody in a competitive environment and tell them they're always going to win, they won't compete for very long. Mm. That's interesting. And it's, it's a different, it's, you know, what I always tell business leaders is I know that it, it may sound political. Uh, the nobody's the same. No human being should be put on the same peg as somebody else. 
and that's a terrible consideration to have. And I say that not tongue in cheek. There is not equality in the world. There's equal opportunity everywhere, mm-hmm. but nobody is equal. Mm. It's a terrible thing that has been put out to society to mm. think that anybody is equal to somebody else. That's not a true, it's not true, like mathematically not true. Even if you had 10 Daniels and you did a race, one Daniel would win. <laughs> if you did everything the same leading up, one person wins. That doesn't make them better than the 10th Daniel. Right. That just means on that given comp, that event, somebody broke out. Yeah. It actually doesn't make them better. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, the odds that things, no, so nothing ever becomes equal. And we put people on pedestals because they're number one, but we don't recognize that that may not be as vital as the person who's in 10th place. They have a better understanding of what it took to get there. They're more appreciative. They can convey it. They have a great life. Then the one in number one place (laughs) may make the money, but they're in despair. So all those things may not be the way to look at being successful. Uh, I like that. Yeah, the guy guy in 10th is getting more out of himself and his genetics. Right. To, to, to be in 10th place. He's not number one, but maybe the guy in first isn't really tapping into everything he's got. Is that, am I understanding? Well, that's, a, that's another thing about competition. Just because you win doesn't mean that you're tapping into your best version of you. Yeah. Uh, and even though it's cool to win, and I've, I know a lot of professional athletes, when they win, they can't recall how the hell they did it. But when you lose, you can recall every agonizing second of a loss, and then you learn from that. Even though that's not necessarily the question that you had, competition doesn't necessarily create the greatest advantage. A great coach is only interested in getting the best out of somebody. Yes. Yes. And, and that's, that's really, I, I think, uh, I like a lot of what you said there, but getting the most out of yourself with the competition and the things that we kind of take on, if if the goal is to get the most out of ourselves, then we kind of play with the environment, so to speak, right. and, and the pools that we're swimming in in order to find whatever our max potential is. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, so I, I, I know you've got things going on today. We don't have much more time here. I, I wanted to, I could keep talking, but um so if you were, if we were building a, a robot and we were computer programmers and we wanted to make this robot have the perfect mindset, what are, and we could only program say two or three traits, what, what are the things that we could put into this robot's minds where this guy, he's going to be, he's going to be making exponential growth in life. So he's going to start out here and he want, we want him to grow and, and climb the ladder, so to speak, and whatever endeavors he takes on. What are you programming into this robot? Well, boy, therein lies the million dollar question. (laughs) As coders are recoding AI Mm -hmm. to try to figure out, you know, how to create the, that. And then, you know, throughout 3000, 4,000 years of written history, 
what are the predominant base codes or character traits of successful people? Mm -hmm. There are two, and there's just two. Okay. The first one is you have to be able to say something and do it, which I call honor your word. You have to be the person that you say you are. So the, like the foundational principle of human success is, has to be a, like the base code, the 0101 has to articulate, uh, be who you say you're going to be. Ooh, I like it. If you say you're going to, you know, call, call. If you say you're going to run, run. If you say you're going to do a push-up, do a push-up. If you say you're going to make a million dollars, make a million dollars. <laughs> so the second part of that, and they're built on each other. Like you can't get to the second part unless you have the first part. And the second part is never give up on that. So be who you are, say something and do it, and then never give up. I love it. If you can put that into a kid's life. Yes. Then you just, all you do is support those two codings. Make I love a promise it. and keep it and then keep <laughs> making a promise and keeping it until it happens. Well, how long is it going to happen, dad? I have no idea. Just keep doing it until it works out. Since those two traits are not taught well, it doesn't seem to me at a, at a family level or definitely not an organizational level. Mm -hmm. People quit too early. People make promises and don't keep them. Don't keep them. Mm -hmm. And then it makes things complex. Yes. Imagine making an agreement with somebody and then have that be who you are like with your wife, your son, your daughter, your business, whatever. When you realize that you can actually make a promise and keep it and then never give up on that, what's possible? Anything that you can agree to and then not give up on. Yeah. It, 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 then it's then it's just how long does this how how long is this robot going to be around? <laughs> you yeah. know, and maybe I, something has to hit not during your generation. Yeah, maybe what you're committed to is a generation gap. Right, you're gonna, you know, whatever the case is. At at one point in time, a marathon was the only thing possible. Yeah. Now they're running three hundred miles. <laughs> right. As yeah. it's common now. Because people have figured out that the body will continue to adapt if it doesn't give up on itself. Yes. And in business, what's possible? I don't know. Yeah. Elon Musk just created something that nobody thought was possible. Absolutely. Well, with the, well, like you say, with this number one and number two that we're programming into our robot, I anything is possible. If we're talking about infinite time, then yep. that, that's the ingredients. Yep. But yeah. You uh, take time out of the equation, but everybody's on a sprint. You ever notice that they're on these quarterly evaluatory, the evaluatory sprints. Mm -hmm. I got to hit this thing in, in 90 days. If it doesn't hit, then I'm a failure. Then I give up on myself and I didn't honor my word. So it crushes that. 
Yes. And is it effective to be on a sprint and use time as a measurement? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. Time might not, might not be the measurement of success. But it, it reminds me of starting out a race. You know, if it's uh, if four laps around the track, if we're running a mile and you start out too quickly and then you, you know, burn, burn the match, <laughs> then. Uh, yeah, that's uh, like the, the 400 is the, the quintessential race on to see who has guts <laughs> and, and has a little prowess. So if you're a 400 meter runner, you know, you can't go out the first hundred. Right. Again, it'll feel really good. You'll be beating around the third turn, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> the wheels fall off the vehicle. Right. Yeah. And and you give up. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, then we're breaking number two. We're yep. we're going against the program. You give so, up on yourself, and then you don't try. Then you don't learn from it. You have one effort, doesn't work out, and I give up. That's right. Well, th this has been fantastic. I, I want to ask you one more question for, for the person that's listening that's not, doesn't have momentum right now. They're, they're not, they don't have any, any um, you know, they're not getting uncomfortable. They don't have a, a workout plan. They, they just want to get started doing something. What can you tell them to help them get started to gain some momentum? Uh, as you referenced it, the deal is with the human condition is that we let adversity change us. So, and I'm not non-emotional or sociopathic. It's not a sociopathic conversation. So who cares? COVID's out. That's not a crisis. But the human condition is allowing the weather to change how it looks at itself. Mm -hmm. So it, it starts negotiating with itself, which is the loss of momentum. What I found to be true is a six-hour baseline that's non-negotiable uh, of what I call three simple activities or three simple things that you do that you cannot negotiate with for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. You wake up in the morning and what I call have spiritual time. It only takes 15 minutes. And you do three simple things there. And then you immediately have to have the people in your life that you engage with by doing three simple things. And that only takes 30 minutes in the morning as well. And then you literally have to be physical in the morning and do three simple things. And the physical three simple things that everybody negotiates with that they shouldn't is you got to work out for an hour a day for the rest of your, of your life, period. Like it's not negotiable. And then you got to stretch for 20 minutes. And then you got to drink 10 glasses of water every day for the rest of your life. These things are not negotiable. Uh, and in relationship, the three simple things are interesting. And if you don't do them, you might as well sign the divorce papers. Listen for 10 minutes a day to your spouse. That's the first thing that you have to do. The second thing is speak committedly to them, not drama. And then have 10 minutes of intimacy every day with your spouse. It doesn't have to be that type of intimacy, some type of intimacy. Right. And, uh, 
and then three hours of workday. Come to find out a three-hour workday is really what you're getting from anybody anyway. <laughs> so the one hour has to be finding new business, mm -hmm. even on Saturday and Sunday. And one hour of dealing with existing business. And then one hour of thinking about the future or strategic thinking. Simple, but everybody negotiates themselves out of it. And it doesn't matter if there's a hurricane, a COVID virus, it doesn't matter what politics are going on. Those, the six hour baseline of doing three simple things in, in the five areas of your life. If you do that, then momentum is simple. But since people are, don't have that in their life, they can't get off the X. Mm -hmm. I love it. And you don't have to worry about what's going on outside. Given the, what I call the baseline that I attempted in my own manner to write about in the, in my second book, three simple things. And I'm definitely going to check that book out. I haven't read either, either one of your books, but this has been, this has been fantastic. And I'm going to make sure to pick up both of those. I hope that the people that are listening have a pen and paper because I think you, uh, I think you gave us some gold nuggets today and I really appreciate it. Well, thanks Daniel. Appreciate it. And uh, have a great day. And I hope to have you on again one time because I've, I've got a lot of questions here that I didn't get to ask you. Well, thanks. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. Right. Bye. See you, bye. Well, that's it folks. Another episode of The Average Dude in the Books. That was episode 10. Thanks again to Mr. Tom Shea. Please go check out his books. I'm going to do the same thing. One of those books is called Unbreakable. The second book is called Three Simple Things. Go out, get your copy, and let me know what you think. Have a great week, and we will see you next time. Let's roll.